we've been talking about when the Christian's books are audited. And you'll remember we talked about the man that's a, a preacher, what he is, and the one thing we said that he was a family man. And the first point of that were the 18 requirements that were described in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> and then we said the second thing is the man of God is a man who preaches Christ, not only 18 requirements, but when he preaches, he preaches Christ, not some uh, little side issue that he wants to preach, but he's always preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may I say to you again, the message of this church is not marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The message of this church is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again, and whoever will repent of their sins and come to him will have eternal life. Now, all we can say beyond that is we believe what the Scripture says concerning marriage. But our message, our central message is still Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if a man will repent of his sins, he will be saved. I want to say that because there are many times that people think that the only message we have is the marriage message. And I want to tell you, we have a salvation message here. We have a holiness and separation message here that we never want to apologize for. We just happen to take a stand on marriage and divorce, and that's what irritates people. But that's their problem, not ours. We know what the Word says, and we stand on the Word. And what used to be called normal today is being called cultish. In many cases, it's just courage, the willingness to stand when you know you're right concerning the Word of God. Then I said, uh, a true preacher serves Christ. He doesn't serve men. He doesn't serve a board. He serves Christ. He has been called, placed into the body to lead and direct and feed the body of Christ and edify them, mature them for the work of the ministry so they can do the work of the ministry. And then fourth, I said that he is a man led by the Holy Spirit. He's not led by a board of deacons. Philip never would have left Samaria and gone out into the desert if he'd been controlled by a board of deacons, I'm sure. They'd have told him he needed to stay there for the revival until that got over with. The man of God has to be free to do what the Spirit of God tells him to do. If he's called of God, then he should get his direction from God. Now, I know you say, boy, that's dangerous. That's really dangerous. I mean, some of these pastors, that's why I say you have to go back before you accept a pastor. You've got to know that person. Find out if they're fulfilling those 18 requirements there or they're morally walking upright so they won't take advantage of you. So they have a good reputation in the community and so forth. That's why I say you have to trust leadership. Now, let's go on from there. And the fifth thing I wanted to say about the man who's a fa the, the pastor who is a family man, he is prayed for by the saints. Now, I know I left this to last, but it's a very important aspect of it. I want to tell you something. And Billy Graham, I appreciate what he's always said down through the years. He said, without the prayers of God's people, my ministry would have been nothing. And I want to tell you something right now. No man of God is going to be successful unless he has learned the secret of having people praying for him. And the more a pastor is prayed for, the more success you're going to see in their ministry. One of the things that thrilled me in the first church I ever ministered in out in Colorado, we had 150 widows in the church. I spoke before those widows one, one day and asked them to pledge to me before God that by the best of their ability they would pray for me at least once, if not twice, every day. 150 widows. I want to tell you something. I saw miracles happen out there in that church. I could be driving down the road to go one place and the Spirit of God say, no, go over here. And I'd go over there and find out I should not have been at the other place and I was supposed to be over here. And I said, Lord, thank you. You're so good to me. And then I realized, hey, that's because somebody's gotten his attention to take care of me. And it's important for God's people to realize if you want to have a successful ministry, pray for those that are in leadership. 
hold them up before the Lord. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to make bad decisions once in a while. The answer is not to throw them out and get another one. That's just like throwing out a violin because you can't play it well and get another one and think you can play it better. The question is, can we pray that God will give them wisdom and understanding? Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself also. Colossians, the fourth chapter. Colossians, chapter 4. Verses 2 through 4. Paul the Apostle, speaking to the church Colossae. Continue in prayer. Another, the Living Bible says, don't be weary in prayer. Another one says, keep at it, keep at prayer. And watch the same in the same with thanksgiving. With all, praying also for what? For us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. He says, don't stop praying for us. I'm in prison right now, but keep praying for us that God will use us even where we are to preach the gospel. We need for you to pray that God will open more and more doors of opportunity for us to declare. I appreciate what one brother in the church has said, we've got to get this message outside of these four walls. Pray that God will open doors. He opened the one door in Detroit, Michigan, and I mean, th that place has never been the same since. It's been exploding all over the place up there. And now they're talking about having me come back on for another interview with someone to debate this subject of marriage and divorce. Well, I don't care. I'll be glad to talk to anyone that wants to talk about it over the air because I know there are believers out there that still remember what the Word of God used to mean. So pray that God will open that door, that uh, the talk show host up there will have the courage to have me back on this station again. There are other radio stations right now that are contemplating the possibility of me being on it. Uh, they're not going to open those doors automatically. I believe that when God's people pray that God will open up doors of opportunity for us. So this message will get out. 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. And you see, when people, when you get an opportunity to preach like that, then your church, people become aware of your church also. And if they agree with it, many times they'll want to come to that church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 25, a very large verse. Brethren, pray for us. All the times Paul wrote to these different churches, he said, pray for us. Pray for us. Look at Second Th Thessalonians, same thing. Second Thessalonians, the third chapter. Second Thessalonians, the third chapter, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, here's the last thing. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And that we... Excuse me. Uh, have free course, and another translation says, and triumph wherever it goes, and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Now that word unreasonable in another in one of the concordances says it means undisciplined, disorderly misfits. Undisciplined, disorderly misfits. He said, pray that we'll be delivered from these unreasonable people. And let me tell you, when you try to preach the gospel, there are a lot of unreasonable people that will come against you. And you can't fight them with flesh and blood. You have to fight them with the fight against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness. And it's when we cry out to God in prayer. By the way, that second Thessalonians, the third chapter, is full of uh, implications of spiritual authority. Over and over again, Paul says, I commanded you, I challenged you, I told you to do this, I told you to do that. If somebody's doing this, you do that. 
constantly referring to the authority that he had as one that was in leadership in the church of Thessalonica. So these things that I've described here talk about the requirements and the evidences of one who will receive in the days ahead a crown of glory. And I really do believe with all my heart that the time is coming in the days ahead where it's going to become crucial and critical for the saints to begin to require that their pastors fulfill these responsibilities or the church is going to be totally corrupted because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. There were years ago when I was in, bio, in college, I remember people saying to me, as goes the seminary, so goes the denomination. Now, it's not always immediate in fact, there is one large denomination that threw some of their professors out and students left and followed them wherever they went because they had made, mentored them. They had brought them in under them and won them to themselves and they took them out with them even though they were preaching heretical teachings, liberal teachings that they did not want in their denomination. But they think they got rid of them, but that seed is in the, all those students that were in those schools those years that they were there. You cannot have those violating these principles of God's Word in leadership, but what it will make its mark, if not on that generation, certainly on the next generation and the generations to come. That's why we need to pray that there's only one hope for the United States, and that's for God to send a revival to His church to where the men of God will be the men that God wants them to be. If that doesn't happen, we do not have a chance for a revival in the United States of America. Pray with us that God will give us wisdom and understanding of how to get these truths out. Now, let me tell you, there are many pastors that do not want their people to hear this message. They do not want their people to be informed as to what the Word of God requires. In fact, they will literally ridicule and laugh about some of these standards that are in the Bible. That's, well, yeah, you know, they always laugh about the fact that they're not fulfilling these requirements in here. And consequently, what are they doing? They're also compromising on what, what are the requirements of a deacon. What are the requirements of a youth pastor? What are the requirements? And finally, when you get totally unqualified people in leadership, what are you going to have? Unqualified followers. And once you make room for one, they're going to want to make room for another, and make room for another, and finally, the whole system breaks down. That's why Paul the Apostle said, these things that I teach you, if anybody teaches you anything different from this, let them be cursed. Don't you ridicule, don't you laugh at what I taught. You teach to other faithful men the things I teach, and they'll teach it to other faithful men who will teach it to other faithful men, but don't you change it. And I want to tell you, dear sister and brother, what we're teaching in this one area of marriage and divorce is exactly what Jesus taught and exactly what Paul the Apostle taught. And they're ridiculing it today. May God have mercy on their soul. The end result is the total destruction of the family. I want to tell you now, the liberal elements and the Communist Party years ago set their goal. Their goal was to destroy the family. If we can destroy the family, we can destroy the nation. And they're doing it. And we're voting them into office to do it. And we're putting them in churches to do it. May God have mercy on our souls. I don't know about you, but I long that somehow God will allow me in that day to stand before Him and be able to receive a crown of glory because I really want to be faithful to Him. Now let me tell you immediately, that does not mean I don't fail. I fail so miserably, so badly sometimes. I come so far short. I have to go back to the cross and say, Lord, without the blood I couldn't make it. But will you please forgive me? Will you reinstate me? Will you help me to really be what I'm supposed to be? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about 
a determination that whether anyone else goes with me, I'm going to go all the way and be everything that Jesus wants me to be. I want a crown of glory when that day comes and I stand before him. That's what I want. And if a pastor wants that, he better go back and find out what Timothy and Titus has to say are the requirements of a pastor. Because when we stand before him, he said it's going to be this, the word that's going to judge us. Not what we think or what we feel, but what the word says concerning this. for this time together. Thank you for your word. We ask that you administer the word of God to our hearts. Spirit of the living God, transform lives, I pray, in Jesus' name. We cannot change anyone's life. Only you can do that. And I pray this morning, as we hear the word of God, we'll not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word, and therefore glorify Jesus Christ. This we ask in his precious name. Amen. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, we've been talking about when the believer's books are audited. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and the 27th verse, it says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The scripture is very, very clear that for the unbeliever and for the believer, after death there will be a judgment. Now, a lot of times we don't like to think about that. Many people like to think about other people dying, but not ourselves. But we said there's going to be a judgment seat of Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with the rewards for those who are Christians. And the Scripture says in that day, every idle word, every idle deed will be answered for. Everything we've not repented of and judged and put under the blood will be judged for and, and will receive a reward. And it's, the Scripture also says, He that does wrong shall receive for the wrong in the, that he hath done, and there is no respect of person. There's some people who think, well, you know, I, I'm in a special classification. That I'm going to get away with something. I want you to know something. God is no respecter of persons. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, we reap life and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. See, God is not some grandfather up there rocking back and forth in his chair saying, that's all right, kids. I understand I had my wild oats. sowed my wild oats too. You go ahead and do it. And I understand completely. No, he said, we're to come out from, out from the world, come out of darkness and walk in his marvelous light. And we are to forsake the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we talked about the judgment that, first of all, is going to happen. In the past, we were judged for that as sinners. In the present time, we're being judged as sons. And in the future, we're going to be judged as servants. What kind of servant were we of Jesus Christ? That's why Jesus kept giving the illustration. There was a certain servant. There were these three servants. One had one talent. Another had so many talents, two talents. And another one had five talents. And what they did with them. We're going to be judged in that day as to what kind of a servant of Jesus Christ we really are. And the first thing was it's going to happen. Second, the result is whatever is not done with the right motive, <clears throat> the right attitude as unto God with, uh, for the glory, the glory all going to Jesus Christ is going to be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. That which was done in the will of God According to the, the, the Word of God, uh, ministering love, the love of Christ out to other people, that will become as precious gems, will become part of a reward. And the next thing we talked about were the rewards. We talked about the incorruptible crown. Now, do you remember what are the requirements for someone to receive the incorruptible crown? Pastor, I don't know why you keep repeating these things over and over again. Why don't you just go ahead? You know? This is why. The incorruptible crown is going to be given to those who die to themselves and live totally for Christ. Paul talked about running the race. 
that is set before him, fighting the battle, running the race before him. And those that do that are going to receive an incorruptible crown. Those who put, the old, the put down the flesh, die to the old man, put on the new man, walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, they're the ones that are going to receive the crown of righteousness. Uh, I'm excuse me, the incorruptible crown. The second one is the crown of life. And the crown of life is for whom? I hear, I hear pages shuffling here. The crown of life is for those who endure temptation, those who endure to the end, those who are not weary in well-doing. When they stand before the Lord, they'll receive a crown of life. Now, the third one was the crown of what? Glory. That's right. The crown. Who's the crown of glory for? For faithful ministers. And we gave out 18 different qualifications for a biblical pastor. 18 qualifications. I'm going to make that available through web ministries, by the way. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of a reaction we get to that because there's going to be a lot of pastors not going to be too excited about that, minister, that message going out. But there are specific requirements for pastors in the Word of God. And uh, we gave 18 of them. They're on tape if you ever need to look at them. And today we want to talk about the fourth one, and that is the crown of righteousness. If you'll turn to 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy... Chapter 4, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. <clears throat> and I could spend hours on this first eight verses here, but I won't, I'll try and not, I'll try to restrain myself from expository preaching right now as much as I can. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick or the living and the dead. And by the way, there's only two classes. Paul didn't give three or four classes. You're either quick or dead. You're either alive or dead. That word quick actually means living or alive or dead. At his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. This is Paul telling Timothy, the authority that he had as he was ministering to the church. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who won't endure sound doctrine? What? You mean the church is going to turn away from the word of God? But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Another translation says telling them what they want to hear. Interesting article came out just recently in the magazine. says the yuppie generation seeks out a church that will tell them what they want to hear and let them do what they want to do. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Another translation says they'll turn away from the Bible and turn to men's misguided ideas. Sound familiar? But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered or poured out, and the time of my departure or dissolution is at hand. He means the time when he's going to be separating his body, the spirit from his body, is close at hand now. And uh, he says, I have fought a good fight. Or he says, actually, in the little more literal translation, I have fought the good fight or contest. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love 
his appearing. Paul the Apostle says, For now I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my dissolution or departure has come, is at hand. In 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verses 1 and 2, I'll read them to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, you don't have to turn to it. It says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, and that's the word Greek word kataluo, which means completely destroyed. If this human body we're in is completely destroyed, I mean annihilated, if it was vaporized, no matter what happened to it, we have a building of God and house not made with hands. It's not going to affect us. When this body gets destroyed, if somebody throws it into a meat grinder, if somebody throws it in the fire, it doesn't make any difference. We have a house. When we move out of this house, we move into a house. We have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Paul Apostle said, we don't complain about the possibility of dying. It's just a fact that one of these days we're going to get out of this old body. And when we do, we're going to be clothed upon with a brand new body if we love the Lord and have trusted him as our Lord and Savior. Now, Paul the Apostle was not a young preacher at this time. He had been preaching for some 30, 35 years. And uh, in that day, that was an old man. And uh, he was in prison when he wrote it. He was in the Mammermine prison, and the Mammermine prison was not a choice place. It was not like today with the air conditioning, television, meals served, all the nice things that you can have when you're in, incarcerated. It was a room that you were lowered down into from a hole in the ceiling. No windows, no light, except that one hole in the ceiling. And uh, yet while he was there, and it didn't look too promising, because later on he, had, he was... Uh, executed by having his head cut off. While he was there, he was singing all the time and praising the Lord for his faithfulness in his life. Remember when he was in the Philippian jail and had already been beaten and his hands and feet were, uh, were in, in uh, uh, chains, locked in chains, that at midnight he and Silas were rejoicing and praying and praising the Lord. Uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, or 14th chapter, the 15th verse, uh, Paul talked about, what shall I do then? I will pray in the Spirit, and I'll pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my Spirit, and I'll sing with my understanding. I cannot help but believe that probably many times while Paul was there in prison, he couldn't express what he wanted to express with the verbalization, and he had to begin to sing with groanings that could not be uttered. And uh, in the midst of his situation, here he's writing to Timothy, saying, here's the authority you have, and this is what your responsibility is, and this is what you should do. In the middle of all that, he ends up in verse 7 saying, I have fought a good fight. He's still victorious. I mean, I'm not whipped. I've fought a good fight. I have literally, I have I've fought the good contest. There's been a contest, darkness against light, and I fought it. And by the way, he wasn't, he wasn't bragging. What he was saying is, I fought the right battle. I fought the right battle. And uh, he said, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And I really wonder today how many older Christians can make that statement. I fought the right fight. And I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, he said, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I know there's a lot of Christians today that are religious, but they're seeking a crown of good income or social position or political power, trying to make changes in this world. And uh, in old age, they can't very well say, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, has prepared for me. A lot of Christians today that I remember years ago were very, very actively serving Jesus Christ in the church. They were praying, they were giving, they were witnessing. And then they became tired and cold and indifferent. 
They can't say to the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. I'm not as close to Jesus Christ today as I was back then. I have kind of settled in. I have just kind of gone down for the long rest just before Jesus comes. I read one time about a train that was carrying a lot of students back to their hometown, and it got a hot box. Now, some of you young people won't know what we're talking about, but I don't know that they've even still got them on the train. But when I was a kid, I lived down by the railroad tracks, and I'd see a train go by every once in a while, and the, right next to the wheel there'd be a box there just smoking. And they used to have a metal box with a lid you could lift up. I used to go along and lift them up and once in a while look inside them when the train was sitting still. But in there, they would have a lot of cotton rags in there, and they would fill that box full of oil. And the, uh, when the train would be running, that oil would be continuing to seep down around the bearing of that wheel, that train wheel, so that it wouldn't get hot. But this particular train got an extremely hot uh, box on it, they called it, and it came to a stop, and they knew they didn't dare stop without warning the next train because the express train was coming in. So they sent the, the, uh, the uh, uh, flagman to go way up ahead and to flag down the express train that was coming from the other direction until they could get this thing cooled off. And he went down, and he was waving, and the train came right on through and smashed into the other train. A lot of people were killed and injured. But the, the express engineer jumped off the train before the two trains collided and ended up in the hospital. And afterwards, they asked him, <coughs> why in the world in court? Why didn't you stop? You saw the flagman flagging, waving that flag. He said, yes, I saw him waving the flag. He was waving a yellow flag. Caution. And I saw I was slowing down. He said, that wasn't a yellow flag. That was a red flag. He said, I beg your pardon, sir. That was a yellow flag. I saw it. And so they asked for the flag to be brought in. And they found out the flag had been sitting in that little railroad flagman's car in next to the window for so long that the red had faded to the place where it had turned yellow. And the man was out there waving a flag, thought he was warning the train to stop, and then all, and all he was doing is saying, slow down a little bit, and consequently there was a wreck. And <laughs> I read that, and I thought, there are a lot of saints that are waving yellow flags of the gospel today where they used to wave a red flag to warn people. Paul didn't. His flag was just as red, just as bright, just as clear, just as strong, right up to the very end. He said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, and here's the key, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Here, I believe, was the secret of Paul's victory. He never lost sight of the fact that Jesus could come. He never lost sight of the fact that the Lord said, I'm going to come back in a day and an hour that you think not. Don't ever say, my Lord delayeth his coming and begin to live riotously and do all these things because I'm going to come back in an hour that you think not. And Paul says he could come at any time. Stay ready. It's interesting, the last prayer in the Bible in Revelation, the 22nd chapter, verses 20 and 21. One of the last things that John the Beloved says, Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. It says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come what? Quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I really believe that it was this hope they kept Paul alive and active and hopeful and pure in his walk before the Lord. 
One of the surest things that will lull us to sleep spiritually is to forget the fact that we're not only a servant of Jesus Christ, but our Lord could come back at any moment. Now, if he doesn't come back, he can call us out of this life at any moment. So either way, it's imminent. We're going to face him imminently one way or the other. And so we must be ready at all times to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And I believe this is the reason Paul never lost his fire. He constantly was reminding himself of the fact that Jesus Christ could come back. And this hope, 1 John 3, 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as Christ is pure. If we have that hope of Christ's second coming, we are a candidate for this crown, the crown of righteousness. Paul spoke of this coming of Jesus Christ 13 times, just as many times as he talked about baptism. There's a lot of people today that want to talk about baptism a lot, but you don't hear them talk much about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back soon because it's this message that makes believers become alert, alert to the attack of the enemy, alert to the necessity of walking daily in the, in the light as he is in the light, it's the one that stirs sinners. You get start talking to sinners about the possibility of Christ coming back. How many of you remember back in 1988 when some people thought Jesus was going to come back? How You know, this church was full. This church was full. I mean, people started coming in here in droves. Jesus might come back. I want to get things straightened out before he comes back. You know, when he didn't come back or the day he didn't come back, went right back. That's why Jesus said nobody's going to know the day and the hour that he comes. And when he comes, it's going to be so instantaneous. It's not even, some people say, the blinking of the eye. No, that's, that's too long. It's going to be one ten millionth of a second, and it'll be over. I mean, you may be sitting here right now, and I can't even, I can't even measure the shortness of that thing. It'll all be over. You get that down in your spirit, and you'll realize you don't wait till tomorrow to get things straightened out. You get things straightened out today. You walk where the Lord wants you to walk today. The crown of righteousness is for those who love his appearing. Now, it's not the same as the righteousness which we experience through saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is a reward. We receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift when we're saved. We invite Jesus Christ into our hearts. And he takes our sin. We take his righteousness. He's we place our sins upon him and we're clothed in his righteousness. I'm not talking about that now. I'm talking about a reward. Uh, that, that other righteousness is the, just being justified before the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a reward that we'll receive, which is called a crown of righteousness, and all true saints have the gift of righteousness. All true saints have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But not all true saints will receive a, a crown of righteousness. That's something they must decide. This is an additional reward. Hebrews 9.28 Hebrews 9.28. Unto them that, what? Them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9.28. The last part of the verse. The last half of the verse. Sorry about that. Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. 
Turn to Titus, the second chapter. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now, now, again, let me emphasize, I emphasized this before, but it's so important for those who tell you that when we talk about holiness that that's legalism and bondage. I want you to notice right there, it does not say for the legalism or the bondage of God to bring us salvation. It says the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. This is true Bible teaching. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Oh, Brother Webb, this is the 90s. In this present world. But this isn't like the faith. No, it's in this present world. As long as we're in this present world, we are to walk soberly, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present right now. Looking for that, what? Blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you see, he's talking about two different things there. First of all, the catching away, the blessed hope, and then about the appearing, the second coming of Christ to the earth. He's talking about two aspects of it there. Looking for, if we're walking that way, we're looking up there. When we quit walking that way, we quit looking up for the coming of the Lord. We just assume that he hold off for a while. All believers expect him to come back. They know that he said he's going to come back. But not all believers love his appearing, and there's a big difference. I can remember when I knew my dad was coming home from work. There's sometimes I really looked forward to his appearing. There are other times when I didn't look forward to his appearing because I knew when he got home there was going to be a board meeting. And I was not interested in the board meeting. I want to tell you something. When we walk uprightly before the Lord, we should love his appearing. I just can't wait for you to come, Lord. And when you have that attitude, there's going to be a crown of righteousness waiting. Uh, I can remember times when I've sat down and eaten somewhere, and afterwards I was in hopes the Lord didn't come right then because I would have been ashamed the way I ate. And uh, <clears throat> like one fellow said, I, after, right after he ate a big meal, he said, I'm not afraid of dying, I'm just ashamed to right now. <laughs> and, and I, and I want to ask you, would you and I be ashamed right now if Jesus were to come? Are we walking in such a way that we wouldn't have to be ashamed? I'll tell you, when you get that hope down inside, it can make a difference in you. I've lived long enough to see young fellows walking around with holes in their pants and their shoes all scuffed up and, and uh, uh, dirty elbows and, and hair all must, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, I can't believe, I mean, mom and dad after them, clean yourself up, go wash your face. You just wash right, wash behind your ears, and you're after them and after them. and then all of a sudden, something happens, and they come out, their hair is slicked back, they're all clean. They've got nice clothes on. They smell good. And what does Dad say? Who is she? Who is, who you who do you meet? What do you mean? What who I mean? You come on, tell what's going on here? What happened? All of a sudden they're looking forward to meeting someone. You get it? I don't know why kids think that parents are so dumb. I want to tell you something. When you and I love is appearing. It's going to change our conduct and our looks, too. There's no way we can avoid it. Just one more thought here. Paul was in death row. 
And you feel this, this testimony he just gave with his life. As I said, he was beheaded. But he wasn't tied to this world. He couldn't have cared less. I read of some Christians one time that were caught in a, in a communist country. And in order to terrorize them, they told them, this is what we're going to do to you. We're going to put you in bags, sew you in bags, and throw you in the river. That's what we're going to do. And they brought the bags in, and they told them to get in the bags. And they climbed in the bags, and they started sewing up the bags. And they heard the Christians singing. They said, what are you doing? We're singing. They said, don't you realize we're going to throw you in the river? And they said, it doesn't make any difference whether we're killed on land or water. I mean, that's all you can do to us is kill us. And after that, we're going to arrive home. Praise God, we're going to arrive home. And until you and I can get that attitude in our hearts, it doesn't make any difference that we don't have to fear what men shall do unto us. Don't fear man, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And realize we only have one person to answer to as far as eternity is concerned, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we should serve him, praise him, witness for him, and just literally love the thought of his appearing again. When he comes, every, the, the, the ground's going to be level. You're either quick or dead alive or dead. You're either a saint or an ain't. There are no in-between things. It doesn't matter who you are. As long as you breathe and are alive, you're alive spiritually or you're dead spiritually. And if he's going to come back in that day, there won't be any time to get things straightened out. We have to have it straightened out now. We need to walk soberly, godly in this present world and then love his appearance. Now, I know that all of us know that he's coming back. Are all of us literally longing for and anxious for his coming back? Do you look at death with fear or do you look at death as absent from the body, present with the Lord? I keep telling people, please don't cry when I get released from this body. I have been in this body for 60 years and the Lord, when he's through with me, the minute he's through using me here on earth, I want out of here. There's nothing to hold me in this world that's compared to what we're going to have in heaven. I don't care what, how big of a checking account you've got or savings account you've got, what kind of a house you've got, it's going to be like a ghetto compared to where I'm going. I don't care what kind of music you like down here, it's going to be as nothing compared to music I'm going to have in heaven. Maybe you've never been able to sing down here, you're going to get your pipes tuned up when you get to heaven. You'll be able to sing in heaven. That's why you're supposed to practice with just a joyful noise right now. The Lord says, I'll tune you up when you get to heaven, but in the meantime, just make a joyful noise. That's all I require to the Lord. But you know, when you see some Christians going around looking like they've been eaten out of a three-foot stovepipe, ready to step on their lower lips, like they're born in the objective case, when, no matter what happens, they're just uh, like this. You think you don't really love his appearing. You really aren't excited about the fact that Jesus is coming back. You don't realize the job and responsibility and the joy he's given you to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. You're just sitting here soaking in your own feelings and your own hurt. And you've got to let Jesus take over and get busy for him and do, begin to do what he's doing. And then just literally look forward and long for his coming. If you don't, you won't have a crown of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I want a crown of righteousness so I can lay it at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I want to give it back to you. I don't deserve it, but I just want to give it back to you. What a privilege we have to serve the living God. 
when I see people just agonizing over serving the Lord, I feel sorry for them. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. It's absolute. It does not change. And you already told us time and time again, behold, I come quickly. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house and many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain in the Lord. Well, I just don't feel like I'm doing anything. Of course you're not doing anything. You can't do anything. Why don't I see a big ministry? You're not, don't worry about the big ministry, little ministry, whatever. Just do what you can do. Bloom where you're planted. Do it continuously, steadfastly, joyfully, rejoicing at the privilege and opportunity. Tomorrow you may not be here and you wish you could continue to do what you're doing for a while. Heavenly Father, we ask that every heart here this morning might reevaluate their timetable, their future projections, their future goals, and make sure they're lined up with the fact that you could come back at any moment and would that disappoint them. Father, I pray that you'll put a new love in our hearts for the fact that the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. This world is not our home and we're just passing through. I pray that we'll live accordingly. We'll not build a castle on this bridge between eternity and eternity. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, is there someone that might say, Pastor, I've forgotten that Jesus said the word love is appearing, and I've gotten all bogged down with some things in this world, and I've lost the real joy that I'm supposed to have and realization that he could come at any moment. And I'm rearranging my priorities right now. I want to love his appearing and live like it, soberly, godly, righteously in this present world. Do you agree with me that God will do that thing in my heart that needs to be done today? Anyone with our praise hands? Yes. Yes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Father, I'm so glad that we look on the outward appearance. You look on the heart. You know exactly what's going on in every one of our hearts. Heavenly Father, I pray that for those that raise their hand today that there will be another stake driven in their life. That they'll say from this day forward, I am committed to fulfill the calling of God in my life at any cost. I'm committed to obey God's word and to do what he's called me to do. Consistent with the word of God, he's called me to do it, and I want to do it, lest he come before I accomplish what he's called me to do. I pray, Lord, you'll honor that step this morning they've taken by raising their hand in the light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment, and we must be about our Father's business. Let it be so, I pray this morning. In Jesus' precious and holy name, all of God's people said, 
Amen. God bless you. This morning we spoke on the crown of righteousness that is going to be given to whom? Are you there? What? Those that love his appearing. And you weren't even here. That's wonderful. Crown of rejoicing are for those who love his appearing. Not just know he's coming, but literally are looking forward to, anticipating, expecting excitedly that Jesus is coming back and they're prepared for him to come back and living accordingly. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, we want to talk about the final crown, and that's the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. Paul says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated as ye know it. At Philippi we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. The Living Bible says, While we were surrounded by enemies, enemies all around us, we still declared the gospel of God. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. He said, God put us in trust to save the message, and so we were faithful. We couldn't have cared less what other men said or thought. We just said what God told us to do it. Verse 5, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. He's saying we didn't do it. We didn't say things that would make you happy so you'd give us money. We weren't there to get your money. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor of the, of, yet of, our, of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. He said, we would have given our very lives for you, not just preach the gospel, we would have laid down our lives for you. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring day and night because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. He said, they said, we work night and day in our mobile home business, building tents, selling tents, in order that we could make enough money so we didn't have to take anything from you. Ye are witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how to be exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Now note again the relationship that Paul the Apostle said to the church of Thessalonica here. We worked with you as a father to his child. A father has authority over his children. And Paul says we had authority over you as a father that doth his child, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, 
and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up the, their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, when we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. They tried their best to come, but it couldn't, because the, Lord, the enemy would hinder them so they couldn't make it. For what is our hope or joy or what? Crown of rejoicing. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Heavenly Father, minister this truth to our hearts. Open our hearts to understand these principles that we might with anticipation realize how we can have a crown of rejoicing. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Paul preached, he said, and taught in very simple language. Uh, even when he was threatened, he didn't uh, try to impress anyone. He was very gentle and affectionate, working day and night to get the word out there in Thessalonica. And why did he do it, he said? Because he wanted a crown. And what was that crown? He, but of course, he knew what, uh, what the Lord said in John 4, 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. If you haven't ever heard that verse before, you need to read it and study it. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. John 4, 36. And because he knew that he had harvested there in Thessalonica and they were his crown of rejoicing. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Remember that word I told you about before, Stephanus? Which means an earned reward or an earned recompense. It's not a gift. Stephanus is a reward. It, and he's talking about the Stephanus of rejoicing. That was when he saw others around the throne rejoicing that he had had a part in getting saved and bringing into the kingdom of God. Someone, if you ever have been around a young lady about ready to get married, they say there's a certain glow about them. They just kind of shine all over when they get a diamond ring. and that's The glow that they're talking about is that they're filled with happiness, they're filled with joy, they're filled with excitement, filled with anticipation. Well, Daniel 12.3 says the same thing happens to a soul winner. Daniel 12.3 says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that win many souls, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. We're going to shine in heaven, glow in heaven, be thrilled in heaven because we have crowns of rejoicing, those that we've brought with us. And this should be every Christian's goal. Not just to know the Lord, not just to grow in the Lord, but to bring others into the kingdom of God with them. If you want a crown of rejoicing, it's going to be happen when we win others to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was here on earth, just stop and think about it for a while. When Jesus was here on earth, he taught, he healed, he fed the multitudes, and his purpose was singular. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. He came to seek and save. Look at uh, Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10. Luke 
underscore that verse so you can remember. For the Son of Man is to come to seek and to save that which is lost. Matthew 20, 28. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Look over in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners of whom I am chief, Paul said. Jesus Christ came with one goal. The Father sent him with one purpose in mind, and that was to win the lost to himself. Jesus could not, when they, he didn't have a meal to eat, and the disciples came back and said, have you eat? He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. What was he talking about? He was witnessing to the woman at the well. And the multitudes were coming out of the city and he was trying to teach them the truths of the kingdom of God. He couldn't eat because his goal was to, to uh, win souls. He, when he couldn't sleep, he stayed up all night praying to the Father that he might have more fruit the next day. When he uh, was ready to die, before he died, he saw to it that he was able to witness to the thief on the cross and say, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. When Jesus ministered in Jerusalem and could not win them to the Lord, the scripture says he went up on a, a hill and looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest, stonest the prophets and killest them that are sent unto thee. How oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathers his chick under his wings, but ye would not. Said he wept over the city. And then he went out of the way. He could have, he could have taken a vacation, but when he was getting ready to go from Judea up to uh, Israel, he, went, had, he said he must needs go through Samaria. He had an appointment in Samaria when he had to meet the woman at the, at the well. Jesus, his whole goal and his whole purpose in life and the reason for which he was sent was to win souls. Win others to Jesus Christ. And to the Christians in John 20, 21, there's an admonition. John 20, 21. John chapter 20. Verse 21. The last part of the, well, the first part of the, then said Jesus unto them again, peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, what? So send I you. So you see, the Christian walk is more, much more than growing in the Lord. It's much more than being baptized in the Spirit. It's much more than being filled with the Spirit. These elements, these, in, these uh, weapons, these qualities that are given to us by the Spirit of God are to be used to win others to Jesus Christ. When others see a, a, a hope that lies within us and asks us a reason for the hope that lies within us, we're supposed to witness to them and share with them and try to win them to Christ. So the, the calling, if God called His Son and sent His Son to preach and to teach and to baptize and to heal and to deliver, to cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to rise up from the grave, and uh, the captive to be set free, he says, just as he sent the, the Father sent his Son, so is Christ sending us. Now, that's not from obligation. We don't have to go around with this big obligation hanging all over us, like we're in bondage from it, but motivation. What's the motivation for us to win others to Jesus Christ? Look at 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 
2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Beginning with verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the what? The love, the mercy, the grace, the tenderness, the kindness of the Lord. Is that what he said? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again to you, but give, give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, knowing no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself, by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, or to know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He says, we have an obligation, but we have a calling, we have a purpose in life, and that is to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, one who speaks in behalf of Jesus Christ. We are his spokesman. We are his, as it were, delivery boy. Paul had this burden so much on his heart that in Romans he said, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I would just be willing to go to hell if in doing so I could win my, all the rest of the Jewish nation to Jesus Christ. I would pay anything for that. He saw the heavy responsibility that's placed upon him to be a soul winner. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9.1. Jeremiah 9.1, the burden that was on Jeremiah's heart. Jeremiah 9. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Here was a heart broken by the love of God. He saw his people as they were going away from God. He said, I wish that my... That my a head were just like an ocean, and my eyes were fountains that would let all the tears out for the agony that I feel in my heart for the fact that my people are lost. John Wesley said, you have only one business, and that is the salvation of souls. You have only one business, and that is the salvation of souls. David Brainerd, 
the missionary to the American Indian says, I care not how I lived nor what hardships I went through if I only might gain souls for Jesus Christ. If we're true ambassadors, if we're true lights, Jesus said, now you are the light of the world, then we will have a crown of rejoicing when we share the truth that Christ has put into our hearts. Now, some people say, well, when we get to heaven, we're going to share and share like it's going to be like... Uh, um, not communism, but uh, where everybody has everything equal. Socialism. Uh, there'll be no difference in rewards. I want to tell you something. When you say that, you're advertising your ignorance of the Word of God. That isn't what it says at all. The Bible does not say we're all going to float around equal in heaven at all. It says over and over again that the faithful are going to receive a crown of rejoicing. And the lazy and the unconcerned and the scripturally, uh, I should say scriptural hobos, I guess, uh, There'll be no reward. Those just kind of slop their way through life. He says there's not going to be a reward for them. God is not partial. There, He is no respecter of persons. If he's no respecter of persons, he's not going to give something to somebody they did not earn. When Jesus gave the example of the servants, the one who buried the one, what did he say? Take it away from him and give it to the one who has the five. Now has the ten. Now I want you to know something. When he says these things, that it's imperative for us to understand that these are not options this is important for us to realize we have a mandate from God. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he's talking about consistently be sowing and sowing and sowing. Ecclesiastes 11:6. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. He said we should always be alert to be able to be a witness for Jesus Christ. One woman was talking to her pastor one time, and she said, you know, I'm home all the time, and I don't know who I can win at home. And the pastor said, well, do you have a, this was some years ago. Do you have a milkman? Yes. Do you have a postman? Yes. Uh, do you know them? No. Well, why don't you hand them a track? Why don't you strike up a conversation with them and see what happened? And a couple of weeks later, she came back. She was so thrilled. She got to meet her postman, and she led him to Christ while he was delivering the mail. A lot of times they say, you know, I'm just in a place where I can't do anything. But Jesus said, bloom where you're planted and be alert for the opportunity. You know, we have to have the attitude like the two shoe salesmen that were sent over to Africa. They said, go to Africa and sell shoes. And the one wrote, uh, sent a telegram back to his company. He said, I'm coming home. No one wears shoes over here. There's no market. The other one wrote home and said, send free shiploads. Everybody needs shoes in Africa. And it depends on how we look at the, at the market that's out there to what we're going to do. I, I read one time of a woman who lived uh, on a street, and on her right side was a minister. On the left side was a seminary professor, and right across the street from her was a retired missionary. And one man came to her, to her home one day to do some work and began to talk to her about the Lord. And, uh, and he, she said, well, I do read the Bible. And she said, I do pray. Why aren't I a Christian? Uh, he says, well, if you read the Bible and you pray, and she asks, well, are you a Christian? Says, well, I don't know. How can, how can I know how to be a Christian? Living between a minister and a missionary and a seminary professor, she had never heard how to become a Christian. She says, I don't know how to be a Christian. So this working man had to show her how she could invite Jesus Christ in her heart. A lot of times we think nobody wants to know, but many times God has hungry people out there that all they're waiting for is someone to begin to tell them about Jesus. Scripture says of Paul in Acts 20, 20, he went from house to house, from house to house, night and day, witnessing to people about Jesus Christ. See, he knew the reality of 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone, 
Underscore that word. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. Everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done. Does that sound like everybody's going to be equal? Whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says, we must all appear. Now that included Paul and us both. Paul says, I'm going to appear there and I'm doing something about it. All the saints at that time are going to be rewarded for what they've done. It says they'll receive reward, reward for the deeds done in the body. And that's why Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Many people, when they pass away, they will all of their estate to the Lord's work somewhere. But while they're living, they're tight as the bark on a tree. And you can't get them to give there I've been around people, and some people come away from them and say, man, they are so tight. And one guy was telling me the other day, he had a, a friend, a, a lady, uh, his wife's friend, was over one day, and she was talking about this, this uh, savings account and this uh, IRA and all this money piled up. He said, you know, you need to go down to the uh, funeral parlor and make special arrangements. She said, what do you mean, special arrangements? He said, well, now, when they make your casket, you tell them to be sure and put a lot of pockets all the way around the sides so you can put all these IRAs and this money that you're stacking up here on earth. He said, if you start spending today, you couldn't spend all the money you've got before you die, and you're worried about how much the church is going to get of your money. But her idea was evidently, well, when I die, I'll give all my money to the Lord's work. The Lord doesn't want our money. The Lord wants us. He wants us to be a witness and a testimony. If he's got us, he's got our money. Paul says, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And consequently, we own nothing because we're stewards. We're responsible. It's a required of a steward that he be found faithful for the talents and the abilities we have. The Lord wants us to be using it to witness and, and uh, share with others. And we can take nothing ahead, but we can sow the seed right here for a crown of rejoicing when we get to heaven. Thank God we can be expecting a harvest when we get there. And those, the reward that's going to come, by the way, is going to be for the things done, whether good or evil. If it's good, we'll receive gold, silver, precious stones. If it's evil, it'll be wood, hay, and stubble, and it'll be burned up. And that's why Paul says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing, Paul says, knowing that he's not that old grandfather sitting up there, knowing that he's a consuming fire, knowing that God is angry with wickedness in every way. And God is not deceived. He said, the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. And so he says, we persuade men. We are soul winners. We are snatching them as firebrands out of the fire. And I say all that to just simply say, if you or I died today, would we receive a crown of rejoicing? Have you and I ever led someone to Jesus Christ personally? I, I, years ago, you remember I told you about a man that had a barber shop in my first church in Denver, Colorado, Englewood, Colorado. He had a clip joint on the main street of town. He was a barber. And I, he was cutting my hair one day, and I asked him if he had ever won a soul to Christ. He had been a Christian for almost 30 years. And he just about took some hair off the back of my head when I asked him that. He got very nervous, and he kept saying, well, I, I brought people to church, you know, and I, I introduced people to my pastor. And I said, no, 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 no. The Bible says that, that we should be witnesses 
to people and win them to Jesus Christ personally. Have you ever sat down in the Scriptures and shown someone how they're sinners and how Christ died for them and how they can be saved and then invite them to make a decision? And I said, how many of you done with that? And he says, well, none. And I thought to myself, 25 years a Christian and never won a person to Jesus Christ. But you know the tragedy is that that's the majority of the church today. That's what's happening with the majority of the church. And we've got every reason in the world why we can't, when in reality we should be saying, Lord, you can do anything. You could bring anyone into my path. Wherever I am, you could bring someone into my path that I can begin to win others to Jesus Christ. If you'll give me the opportunity, Lord, I'll say whatever you want me to say. <clears throat> you know, if you want to win souls to Christ and you really mean you're serious and you're not too bold about witnessing, then carry some tracks in your pocket. Just say, can I share some good news with you, something that really made a difference in my life, and hand it to them, and, and then let them read it. And That's where you start. When I first went to Bible college, the first thing you had us do was go down on Skid Row and hand out gospel tracts. And I'd start talking to somebody, and they'd nail me to the wall. They, didn't, they knew so many, much more about Scripture than I did. And I didn't, I'd go home and study real hard and come back the next time thinking, I'm, I'm all boned up this time. They'd ask me a different question. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I'll, I'll get that answer and get back to you go home and study that and come back and they'd ask me a different question. That, went out, that was so frustrating. But I just kept handing it out and handing it out. I thought, Lord, is there any good to this at all? Until one year I went back to school and I was driving down the street and I looked over the sidewalk and there was a fellow I had the year before led to Christ. And here he was handing out tracts on Skid Row. I thought, praise God. I didn't know there was any fruit that was going to last down there at all. But just take a tract if you have to and hand it out. Psalm 126.6 says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He says it's absolutely sure, positively true. Just as a farmer can sow a crop, if you'll sow seeds, winning people to Christ, you will harvest a crop. Now, a farmer can sow a crop and lose it. But I want you to know something. That's not true of Christians. It says, Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. His word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. 